I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Shark. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is April 5th, 1965. We are at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California. We are highlighting the top films of 1964. And uh, Bob Hope, the famous Bob Hope, has been presiding over the ceremony. Tonight, it's time for the big award. The envelope, please. And the winner is... My Fair Lady. <laughs> oh my <laughs> stupid <laughs> I, I i mean like i didn't know what to say about that one um me either i, I mean, have you know what are you gonna do i uh i have lots i have lots of thoughts on 1964 um it is a very interesting year um in fact i think this year is so interesting that we need to bring in a third person to help us out with um with talking about it because uh I discovered partway into our experiment that we had one super fan. I think it's just one. If there's another one, please reveal yourself. Um, and uh, it's my my very good friend, Carmine Bichetti. Hello. I am so thrilled to be here. I am a totally super fan. I've listened to every single episode. Oh, that just like, makes he my heart so happy. He was actually super upset when we took a break between season one and season two. We can't take a break again, Sam. I think that that's the, the lesson in this. <laughs> hey, I'm down. I'm down. We got a lot of movies to watch, so you're you're right. We probably shouldn't take a break. Yeah. Well, before we get to the uh, awards itself, why don't we, why don't we ask uh, Carmine, who's been through this with us year by year, uh, what his thoughts are on his favorites you know we talk about our favorites all the time what what are what are his discoveries and that kind of thing um throughout the 36 years we've done so far sam do you have a burning leading question for this sure i guess my first question i would like to ask you is of the best picture winners we've covered what is your favorite one i'm particular to a few favorites actually i've learned discovered a new favorite because of you guys and Ransom will know what I'm talking about. I did not know Marty until you guys and I absolutely went head over heels, fell in love with Marty. I just thought it was a brilliant, brilliant picture and I love it. And I had no idea what that was until I heard you guys talk about it. So Marty is definitely up there for me. Yay! I have a question. I have a question. I have a question. Um as uh an Italian American, did Marty like really speak to you in a realistic way it nailed it i mean it i mean they nailed it nailed it and um, i mean borgnine nailed it the the screenwriter nailed it and i don't believe any of them were even italian i mean maybe ernest borgnine is somewhat italian but i they really nailed it perfectly uh because that's the you know like um i i think sam and i come from different backgrounds and that felt like a window into um that culture um you know in a very different way than like the Godfather is and um, which we'll get to eventually. And <laughs> I, I was just curious about how much it, it got accurate about, about that. I mean, like 
if you weren't gay, would your mom be pressuring you to get married to a woman right now? Oh, 100%. 100%. I think it actually shows a more more realistic uh, depiction of Italian-Americans than The Godfather. Because, I mean, out of all the Italian-Americans in the world, how many are actually in the mafia? I mean, I can't imagine many. Most of us are, are Martys. Most of, I mean, most guys I know still live with their mothers and their mid-30s. So I think, kind of like Moonstruck, it is a very realistic depiction of an Italian family. Okay, and uh, then let's uh, let's move a little bit. You know, Sam and I love to highlight performances as well. Do you have a favorite performance um, or a favorite favorite discovery performance? I have actually, I have a lot. Yes, but my, I think <laughs> what I'm focused on is that you guys highlight a lot of performances that weren't the winners because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time. Well, not a lot, but often the Academy does make a mistake and they do, um, you know. No. When would they ever make a mistake? <laughs> the greatest show on what? Sorry. They, they do this thing where they kind of course correct and they give somebody an Oscar a couple years later because they should have given it to them, you know, back when. And then mm-hmm. somebody else gets screwed. So someone like, like Bogart, who should have won in Casablanca, then gets an Oscar for the African Queen, which he didn't really deserve. And then Monty Cliff went and got screwed, who I think should have won that year. Mm, yes. Yeah, well, but enough about Monty's personal life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I have people, I mean, I have, you know, I have a list of people who I think should have, could have won between Gloria Swanson or, you know, Judy Garland, who I feel like really deserved it more. Um. What so you were telling me that you think Gloria Swanson deserved it more than Betty Davis? I mean, that year is a really tough year, and if there ever was a another year to have a tie, I think that would have that would have been it. Oh my gosh, I kind of love that that could have been a tie. Honestly, yeah, give it to Betty and Gloria. I actually think that is what the the best outcome could have been. <laughs> you know, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm not upset about the tie that does happen. I will say. The tie that does happen is actually just as deserved because you cannot choose. I can. It is. Oh, my God, Sam. <laughs> you're just upset that she won for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I think that's what you're upset about. I am upset um, about that, yes. The tie that does come up, I, I do agree that I would have given it to Barbara. But the tie that should have been in 50, I could see mm-hmm. why people would be staring at that, at that card and seeing Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson and not knowing which one to pick. And then just ticking off Judy Holiday because it's the other option. And that's yeah, why she yeah. won. And Judy Holiday is great. It's like, don't take away from her performance. She's just stacked up against two iconic performances. You know? Right. I mean, I don't know how I would choose. I feel like I have a Betty Davis bias, but I do feel like there is a situation where I vote for Gloria Swanson. Were there any performances that you... Performances? Performance? Yeah, I said that right. Mm. Um, that you... <laughs> I'm having problems over here um, that you discovered because of the podcast. Like I'm sure you had seen Sunset Boulevard or all about Eve before, but was there anything that you watched that you said like, Oh wow, look at this person. I I'd seen them all before, obviously, but I did rewatch Sophia Loren who I already had loved, of course, because you know, I'm Italian, mm-hmm. but I rewatched it thinking I didn't really remember it. And I rewatched it and I thought, Holy, Holy shit. Like this is amazing. She really, really, was astonishing and i could totally see why she won that and she deserved it and it's an incredible actually you guys talk about it but it's an incredible impact 
on the Academy Awards to have her win. Oh, without a doubt. And that was the year where every person who won was um, uh, either not from America or of um, of foreign descent. Right. Um, because uh, George Shakiris was Greek and um, Sophia Loren was Italian and uh, Maximilian Schell was... Um, uh, wait, was he... German? Oh, German. Thank you. German, Austrian. Um, and then uh, Rita Moreno uh, was from the then American um, uh, uh, territory of Puerto Rico, but it had only recently become a territory when she was born. So um, it was a it was a, a progressive year because some people who weren't just you know british or american won oscars so and besides the foreignness of it which was really of course hugely impactful there is this great bridge with sophia loren between this old hollywood style of acting and this neorealism style of acting that was coming into Mm -hmm. the forefront and this method kind of acting that was just starting to pop up and she's kind of the bridge in between that because she is this old hollywood type but she's giving a very realistic kind of method performance. So she kind of segues into that. Oh, absolutely. You and know, you also have that trope of like the beautiful um, Hollywood star leading lady image of a woman dressing down and getting down and dirty and, you know, kind of doing a rough, gritty role, which, as we know, Oscar loves to award. You know, there's a lot of something I like about the 50s and 60s is a lot of those um actors who we think of as being old style have to it's interesting to see some of them displaced into movies that are a very different acting style with actors like montgomery clift you know um just having like the juxtaposition of montgomery clift um with uh judy garland in a movie you know with uh marlena dietrich in a movie um and what's interesting to me is that the ones who are truly great performers end up adjusting quite well to the different styles, you know, um, a movie that we talked a little bit about in 62, you know, which I, I, it's a Nero realism, but it's more of an independent filmmaking style that's mixed with old school is whatever happened to baby Jane, you know, and you get, you see the two time periods clashing in a lot of these movies and the, ones who are truly great actors rise above and kind of adjust. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. You see that again in streetcar where Vivian Lee doesn't even try to adjust, but it's just, you'd see there's such a, just a difference in style that's so opposite, but actually works really well. Especially Definitely. because her character is so, uh, her character is so detached from reality that it, you know, that I think it really works in that instance. And how, I mean, like, somebody who knocked it out of the park totally twice, you know? So basically, do you feel like through our podcast you have learned anything that you wouldn't have learned otherwise? Have we done something for you? You have opened my eyes to many a movie, and you... Actually, I love when you also talk about the ceremony itself and the cultural impact of it all and, you know, why certain actors won, why they were favored, why they didn't win. It's it's opened my eyes to a lot. I love it. Well, the politics of it, you know, the politics of it is what drives me. I think 64 
is a very good year to talk about in terms of studio politics because i think the winner is a line in the stand for studios absolutely so that's my yeah. transition um so let's talk about let's talk about 64 sam lead us off let's do it this was um a very unique year and a year of a couple of firsts actually i found it interesting that this is the only year that three movies get 12 or more nominations both beckett and my fair lady got 12 noms and then mary poppins got 13 nominations the only time that that many movies has scored that many noms in the same year i thought that was kind of interesting and what three how different could three movies be oh, so different <laughs> <laughs> um oh goodness i was just looking at the information for the actual uh ceremony mm-hmm. and there's the performers of who sang everything and judy garland did a cole porter melody uh medley i was so hoping you were gonna bring that up <laughs> uh do you have something to say about this because i i've never seen this i've never seen it either but i just saw that she sang like 10 songs oh my gosh Uh, like literally i'm sure that it's only like seven or eight minutes but it's like you know just the choruses of the songs or whatever but i mean that's got to be incredible (laughs) she starts with night and day and ends with night and day and hits you're the top and uh uh it's still lovely and and don't fence me in and all these other i get a kick out of you all these other classic um little songs um it's actually a pretty stacked lineup for the performers because we also have andy williams performing and and patty page is doing the classic opening song for hush hush sweet charlotte um (laughs) what a classic which hush hush sweet charlotte uh had um has some of the most nominations for a movie not to be nominated for best picture Um, how many did it get I believe it got seven. Seven. Um, so I think the only one to beat that is Dreamgirls, where I got eight without a Best Picture nomination. And I believe it struck out. I don't think it won a single one. So uh, um, that's unfortunate. But isn't it interesting that Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte got more nominations than Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is like the quasi-prequel? Yeah, that is kind of odd. <laughs> I think it, it, is, it is stuck in the supporting actress race here a little bit um do do you i I gotta tell you i haven't seen sorba the greek so i really probably shouldn't take this oscar away from her but i do have a huge problem with the fact that agnes moorhead never won an oscar uh yes (laughs) and and we we've tried to give her an oscar in the past (laughs) and i would give her one for hush hush sweet charlotte she's kind of delightful in it so she's a fox i love her yeah she can take an oscar for any movie she's in she she's always she's i mean like i i'm sure we all were introduced to her through bewitched um but D- if debatable. you see her in the, huh i said that's did debatable. you not watch bewitches i've never seen an episode of bewitched oh my god <laughs> even well, when well, i watch hush hush sweet charlotte i look at her and i just call her andora in my head because that's who she is uh, i was gonna say too in this ceremony i thought it was really really sweet that joan crawford presented the best director oscar to george Cukor, one of her longtime friends i think that's kind of an awesome little piece of trivia for this oscar ceremony 
How does Joan Crawford keep getting picked to present these Oscars? Listen, she know? is the professional. <laughs> she will deliver no matter what she's doing. You can count on her for anything. Something tells me she volunteered herself. <laughs> and that. <laughs> she 100% volunteered herself. There is absolutely no question. Um <laughs> In case you guys don't know, I just want to very briefly, because this is important Hollywood history, in case for some reason the 10 gay people not listening to this don't know, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was supposed to star Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and then there were problems on set. The root of these problems are debated. You can take sides with Joan, you can take sides with Betty, Whatever the case, Joan was definitely being ostracized on set. She feigned illness. It probably wasn't real. And uh, they ended up um, canceling her contract and firing her and hiring Betty's very good friend, Olivia de Havilland, to finish the movie, which is a whole backstage drama. But it does give us Olivia de Havilland playing a bad guy, which doesn't happen very often. And she is pretty fantastic. I think so, it's a better movie for having Olivia de Havilland in it rather than Joan Crawford, honestly. I think she would be very distracting. I feel like it's a good pump fake because you, sorry, this is kind of a spoiler, but whenever you, uh, you don't expect Olivia to become this nasty person, you know? Right. It, it's, it you, you, you buy that more. And then whenever she slaps Betty... It's the, I think people become gay watching that moment. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, anywho, so that's enough about a movie that didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> um, well, hey, how about this? I feel like we're already kind of transitioning into our other segment here. We should, let's go into our spotlight segment here. One that I kind of want to talk about, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, Carmine, is Dr. Strangelove. Uh, this is such a good movie, and I think also a really important film for the time that it was released here in 1964, talking about the Cold War um, and the fear of nuclear war at any given moment. Particularly, I just want to say Peter Sellers deserved Best Actor. 100% Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this mm -hmm. guy is playing three different characters, three like separate and unique characters as well, doing different accents as well. Um, I'm curious, Carmine, of the three that he plays, which one is your favorite of his? I kind of like the FDR style uh, thing that he's doing <laughs> as president. I mean, I think that comedy obviously gets really underrated at the Oscars. And this is a performance mm -hmm. that is it's funny, but it's it's not outright funny it's a subtle black comedy and it's really really smart and no offense to rex harrison but it's a one note the entire time it's like pulling teeth i'm sorry and the way he sing talks or talk sings it makes my skin crawl it actually i can't stand him in this movie i know he originated the character i know he's great on broadway let him have the tony but this was peter zeller's oscar absolutely his oscar especially after finding out that much of the dialogue um, that he has playing the president in Dr. Strangelove was improvised. Genius. And like all the conversations he has over the phone with uh, with Russia, I, it's just so funny. And as you say, a masterclass in subtle humor. It's so what? brilliant. And then you have him playing, um, oh, the, the colonel, the, the captain Mandrake. 
um, who is just the mo has the most dry sense of humor as well. It's all these subtleties that you mentioned. Uh, just yeah, he has these fully rounded characters, and they're so brilliant. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned not taking comedy seriously. I'm sure that a lot of voters, when they were looking at this list, were like, "Well, we're not going to give it to the guy from the Pink Panther movies." You know, mm. like that's the way they were probably thinking. Um, and, they, and he was stacked up against these four other guys who were all considered to be quote unquote, you know, serious actors, you know, mm -hmm. um, including a, a lot of people would make arguments for either Burton or O'Toole and Beckett as well. So um, it's a pretty it's a pretty stacked best actor category this year, to be fair. Absolutely. Uh, and I think this is also one of those things where this movie was just a little before its time. And I'm sure a lot of people probably watched it and didn't understand the humor or mm -hmm. were just downright maybe just like a little, um, oh, what's the word? Not like afraid of it, but uh, not didn't want to find it funny because it's so topical as to what they're experiencing in their daily lives. Yeah, I think that uh, when we get to Best Picture, I think it'll be interesting to contrast what wins with this because i i think that there's very much a statement that's being made in what wins in when in what wins best picture so um i'm gonna hold my comments on that but um i i will agree with you that i would put peter sellers over rex harrison even though rex harrison of course had a great uh hollywood career you know he also was involved in a really really big hollywood scandal i don't know if you guys know about this but he was having an affair in the 1940s with uh with an actress named um carol landis who um was mainly like a b-movie actress she hadn't um she didn't make any that many uh huge a-list movies and when she did she was usually the second lead but she did appear in some of the sequels to like uh topper and some other stuff and in 1948 she took her own life after spending a night with harrison um and uh the what they say is that he discovered her and then he didn't call the police for a while so that he could get the scandal covered up and his name cleared of the whole thing um, and a lot of people blame him for her killing herself because, you know, apparently she had threatened it and he didn't take her seriously and all this other stuff. So maybe Rex Harrison wasn't that great a dude. I don't know. But I will say when he wins Best Actor, he gives he's part of what I would think is the most awkward moment in Oscar history, which uh, you should watch the clip on YouTube if you haven't. Um the person who presents Best Actor is none other than, any guesses? Audrey Hepburn. Oh. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn presents Best Actor. And then, after she presents Best Actor, he keeps her on the stage for his speech, like, right beside him. And calls out both her and Julie Andrews, who's in the audience, and thanks both of his fair ladies. Oh, that's just, oh, yeah, that doesn't sit right with me. It's so awkward. And Audrey looks so uncomfortable. Obviously. I assume they knew he was going to win, probably. And that's why they asked Audrey Hepburn to present. 
I would imagine so, to make a cute moment. But I mean, um, there had been lots of controversy that Audrey Hepburn didn't get a nomination and further con- controversy that Julie Andrews um, didn't get the part um, that she had originated on Broadway. Oh, there's a lot to talk about there. Oh, yeah. So you're right. It does kind of feel like rubbing salt in a wound as Rex Harrison is <laughs> thanking both of them. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, uh, this is a good transition. Let's put a little spotlight on Best Actress here, because this is, this is the hot topic, I think, of the year. I think you're right. right now. Um, so I'm just gonna, bre- I'm just gonna run down the nominees really quickly, um, mm-hmm. so that we know we're in a time and place here. Uh, of course, we have, uh, Sophia Loren again in Marriage Italian Style, which I saw at the TCM Film Festival a few years ago, and it is a great little uh, dramedy. Um, And then we have Anne Bancroft in The Pumpkin Eater, which I have to assume is about carving pumpkins at Halloween. And (laughs) we have Kim Stanley on Seance on a Wet Afternoon. We have Debbie Reynolds triumphantly, and with her only nomination... Because she was snubbed in the '90s for Mother, um, the in the unsinkable Molly Brown playing, you guessed it, Molly Brown, mm. and um, then of course we have Julie Andrews who won for Mary Poppins. Um, the big thing that happened here that was controversial is that Julie Andrews had originated the role of Eliza Doolittle on Broadway with Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. And um, then she was passed over by Jack Warner for the film because she was not a movie star. And he decided to go instead with Audrey Hepburn, who recorded all of her vocals for the movies, but ended up not having a strong enough voice uh, for anything except the Cockney segments um, where she's singing with a Cockney accent. And uh, they ended up uh, dubbing her with Marnie Nixon, who also dubbed Natalie Wood in West Side Story and Deborah Carr in The King and I. And then um, the, this became controversial whenever, you know, post-movie, it became very widely known in the press that uh, Audrey Hepburn had been dubbed and she was snubbed. Uh, for uh, Best Actress nomination, some people believe very unfairly. I would agree with that. I think that in spite of the fact she's dubbed, I think she does give the best performance in the film. But then um, Julie Andrews won the Golden Globe, indicating she would probably win the Oscar. And when she won the Golden Globe, she thanked Jack Warner for (laughs) overlooking her and said without him... I want to thank Jack Warner, without whom this wouldn't have been possible, because she accepted Mary Poppins after she was passed over for My Fair Lady. So Ugh. it kind of all works out in the end. But um, what a badass! But um, it is interesting to imagine what the movie would have been with Julie Andrews. But I will say that I personally do think Audrey Hepburn, in spite being dubbed, does give a great performance. Mm, okay. Okay. Um... Now other people go and say things. So I, I, I just can't, I have a hard time watching My Fair Lady and not being so sad at the thought of how much better it would be with Julie Andrews in it. I think Audrey Hepburn is cute and adorable, but I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think her Cockney accent is annoying, which I understand it's supposed to be. But not annoying in like a in an endearing way. You want to like you want her to you know do better and be better. Like I just want her to leave. I don't know. I I I it's, I it's it's not it for me. 
I agree. I think that Julie probably would have added a layer of depth that Audrey maybe doesn't have here. Um, mm. And, of course, the singing would have been phenomenal. If you ever heard oh. the, the Broadway cast recording of My Fair Lady, Julie Andrews knocks it out of the park, as as usual. And it's it's sad to think what would have been if it had been made with Julie Andrews. But either way, Julie Andrews was going to win the Oscar this year. If she had been in My Fair Lady, she would have won the Oscar. Absolutely. I was just going to say that, actually. I think this was Julie Andrews' year, and it upsets me so much that she wins for Mary Poppins and not for My Fair Lady. Because I will throw this out there. I don't think Mary Poppins is a good movie, and the fact that it has 13 nominations is so bizarre to me. Sam, what are you smoking? <laughs> I understand it's an unpopular opinion. And I think it's because I didn't really grow up watching Mary Poppins as like a kid or kind of ever. I watched it a little bit later in life. And I also kind of found it to be rather annoying. Um, and I don't think she's anything amazing in it. I think she's okay. Again, she sings pretty, but I don't know. The character of Mary Poppins doesn't scream Oscar to me. It doesn't scream Oscar. Correct. I agree with you on that. But... Not everything has to scream, Oscar. She's giving you a, a character, an original character, and she is so brilliant. She is, she's cheeky, and she's funny, and she's sincere, and she's sad and sweet, and her vocals are amazing, and she's dancing, and she, I mean, she's so good. I know there's no okay, big let's... dramatic moment that gives her, like, you know, her big monologue or any of that, but she just is this beautiful original character that, that no one else could have done. I can't imagine anyone else doing this. Yes, that I will agree with you. This She owns the role of Mary Poppins, for sure. It certainly becomes an iconic character. I, I think I only saw Mary Poppins once when I was a kid, and then I watched it as an adult. And I, um, I mean, like, I, I'll, I'll be honest, this is going to be an unpopular opinion. I, I don't hate My Fair Lady. I like Mar My Fair Lady. And I like it more than I like My Mary Poppins. But I also think Mary Poppins is fine. I'm just not uh, incredibly passionate about either topic, to be completely honest. I do think the character Julie Andrews creates is iconic, though. Um, and I do like her winning for this, but I will say, objectively speaking, I think her performance in The Sound of Music uh, the following year, I also think her performance in a movie that came out in 1964 that uh, is not a musical and that she was nominated for and she wasn't nominated for called the Americanization of Emily. Mm. I think those are more difficult, interesting performances. I think that's why she won because she had the Broadway pedigree and she had Americanization of Emily and it was her year. It was just her year. Yeah. Have either of you seen the Americanization of Emily out of curiosity? No. Uh, it's, it's, she's, it's just a really, it's a really good world war two movie. If you guys, uh, and James Garner's in it, and he's always delightful. So, um, and he's always by delightful, I mean like he's super sexy in the mid sixties. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, the only other, the only other thing in this category, I, I just want to say I'm upset that this is Debbie Reynolds' only nomination. <laughs> I love yeah. Debbie Reynolds, and I, I think Debbie Reynolds is is always a trooper, and I think what she does as a performer is something that's underrated because because very few people can make performing as effortless as she does. Her best performance, I, I, in the golden age of Debbie Reynolds, I think this is her best performance. She's great later on in Mother, you're right. And she's great in In and Out, but she this is her best early performance. Right. Yeah. 
we'll get to uh, we'll get to her snub in thirty years for mother. But um, a friend of mine, I will say, just a quick story. Um, someone who I was a tour. You remember Dean uh, Rika at uh, at Universal, right, Sam? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, Dean uh, saw her at a convention once, and uh, his partner Rick. Uh, yelled after her you deserved an oscar for mother and she was leaving but she stopped turned around and she pointed at him and said you're right and left <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it um oh debbie we'll we'll give you an oscar later if we can we'll see yes. how it goes um all righty so we got to talk about uh the big the big category we've already kind of skirted around a couple of these movies Yes. Um, but why do we think I, I want to I have a, a whole soliloquy on this, but why do you guys think My Fair Lady won this year? Go ahead, Carmine. I think My Fair Lady is kind of the Lawrence of Arabia of musicals. It Ooh. is it is this giant epic musical. It is huge. It was a very big hit on Broadway and it's a, it's a good movie. It's beautiful. Looking at it, you can watch it on mute and it's beautiful. And the, the music is actually fantastic, too. It is not as innovative or as modern as the rest of them. It's a very old Hollywood style. And I think that Academy was latching on to the remains of what was in voting for this. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. It's And it's also, I would say, sort of a unique musical in that it's about linguistics. You know what I mean? And like talking, like you wouldn't really think of that being a topic for a musical. But it takes that storyline and really does something kind of extraordinary with it um, by commenting on the class system. And, you know, how your class isn't about how you talk or the what you say. It's about how people treat you. That's kind of the overall message that comes into this. And I think linguistics is an interesting way to comment on that. I think the thing that kind of, um, of course, if if people don't know, this is actually based on uh, a, a previous play um, called Pygmalion, which was made into a movie in the 30s with uh, Leslie Howard and Wendy Hiller um, that was also nominated for Oscars. Um, and then it became the musical My Fair Lady, which became the movie musical My Fair Lady. Um, and Pygmalion was based on a... The play was based on a story before that, I believe. Um, it has a long history in pop culture, and they've knocked around remaking My Fair Lady a lot over the years. Um the thing that I think is a little defeatist and I, I think uh, the ending has her kind of coming back to him. And that's kind of the one thing that I think really bothers me about the story because he's so yes. awful to her. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You know, um, he's not a likable person. No, oh, he's awful. He's dreadful. I was going to say the exact same thing. I do not understand the ending. I'm like over here still thinking, why isn't she going off with the prince who clearly is has a thing for her? What happened to that? I would have left with him in a minute. Oh my god, and he's gorgeous. But instead she has this weird fling with this Freddy guy, and then she goes back to this abusive mentor. I, yeah, I don't get the ending. I don't get it. Oh, here's the fun yeah, I'm wrong. I, I like Freddy. I vote for Freddy. I do too. And he sings the song On the Street Where You Live. Which, interesting fact, um, one of the other people who was up for the role of Henry Higgins before they ended up just casting Rex Harrison was Cary Grant. Um, and 
I would have listened to him talk sing all day long. But he, of course, was in a movie last year, which I talked about in last week's episode, um, called Charade with Audrey Hepburn. And there is a little moment where they get off of an elevator in the movie and he goes, on the street where you live. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Which is a, a nod to My Fair Lady, but it's before she filmed and was it's before she was even cast in um the movie so it's just a reference to the musical in that movie um anyway little little factoid um so yes why is it yeah so why is yeah. it you guys do you think the ending is the way it is what are they trying to say i don't understand like what is it about henry higgins that makes her come back to him in the end i think they were trying to make henry higgins redeemable and likable and the only way they could get us to kind of like him is to use her as an example of oh well she likes him so we have to like him too Mm. do do you guys know if the stage musical ends in the same way uh i think it does doesn't it i've i've never seen it so i'm not sure Um, i wasn't sure if this was like the hollywood way of ending it or something (laughs) i'm not sure uh you know what you guys i i can find this out very easily Mm, google Um, magic I can go with the the Wikipedia magic and they're extremely detailed. Yes, it ends the same way. I just found out. Yeah, it I was ends say, with the line does. Eliza, where are my slippers? Yeah, and like what a line to end it on. Like, my God. He clearly has learned nothing. You know what I mean? It's a very chauvinistic movie, actually, from beginning to end. Very. hmm But here's here's interesting. I'm gonna I'm quoting Wikipedia of the end of the play Pygmalion, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Higgins incorrigibly gives Eliza a number of errands to do, and as though their recent conversation has not taken place, Eliza disdainfully explains that why they are unnecessary and wonders what Higgins is going to do without her. Higgins laughs to himself at the at the idea of Eliza marrying Freddie as the play ends. Mm. So it's like ambiguous as to what she's going to do in Pygmalion. Am I the okay. only one who the entire time thought he was gay? And she was like his little project. I can see that now. I didn't like have that thought when I was watching, but I do see it. I thought they were like two older confirmed bachelors, quote unquote, and they had like a little project. Like, let's give somebody a makeover. And he literally sings a song about why would almost make it redeemable. Cause, well, he sings that song too about why can't women be more like men. (laughs) I mean, he's so gay. (laughs) Well, you know, I I have to say. The end, the end is, is still subtle and you could just interpret it that she's just stopping by, you know, hmm. um, cause he asked her to get her slipper, get him his slippers. We don't actually see her do it. Do we? No, we don't see it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. The way that it ends to me is very, it's very clear that she has come back to stay with him. And I'm like, in what way, though? Is it is it just like a mentor kind of a relationship? Or does she love him? I don't know. It's, there's something kind of like icky about that, too. I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's not healthy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's very toxic. <laughs> On any yeah. level. He's denying his true sexuality. She... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she is... Um... She uh, is in this mentally abusive relationship... Um, yeah, I, I don't stand, I don't stand Henry and Eliza. I will say story aside though, it is visually gorgeous movie. I mean, the art direction is phenomenal and the costumes, the costumes in the horse race scene. Ugh, they are to die for. 
Oh my gosh. I mean, when she walks out of the horse race scene in that dress and that hat, I'm just like, has there ever been a more beautiful costume for a movie? I don't think so. And the extras are all done up like to the to the nines. I mean, it's yes. beautiful. And the way it's staged as well, they're kind of set in these tableaus and then they kind of move on beat with the music. It's yeah, it, as you said, you could watch this with the sound down and just see it all happening. And it's so visually striking and interesting every frame. I um. I'm friends with um, a lady named Monica Henried, who's the daughter of Paul Henried, um, who starred, you know, in Casablanca mm -hmm. um, and uh, now Voyager um, and directed Dead Ringer, which comes out in 1964 with Betty Davis. Um, and she plays one of the maids at Henry Higgins um, house in the movie. And she told me um, once about, like, just how how involved she was with rehearsals, you know, months beforehand, even just playing a maid in the movie without a name, you know. And, um, and what a, a giant um, undertaking it was. She also told me that um, the day the scene um, Wouldn't It Be Lovely was filmed was the day jfk was shot um and then you know like audrey hepburn apparently like came on set and told everybody and then you know they got back to work wow yeah that is um, interesting. adds a adds a layer to that one um but anyway um it, it so it is a fascinating movie in a lot of ways but something that carmine brings up that's so true is you know jack warner largely poured everything into this movie to make it like his crown jewel achievement because and he personally produced it he didn't um he didn't pawn this off onto one of his uh his producer minions at the studio he was the head of the studio and he personally took an interest in this project and part of that was because he wanted to prove that uh you could still make a huge box office bonanza movie just um, with the tools that are at the studio and not going on location as location photography was becoming a big thing at the time. And the fun thing about My Fair Lady that you may not realize is there is not a single second of this movie that was shot outside of a soundstage. They don't even use backlots. They built those um, those giant uh, the the street where you live is inside of a stage. Um, oh wow! Uh, wow wow wow! Yeah, uh, the Covent Gardens is inside of a stage. The art direction is is fantastic, but I will say in comparison, the art direction of Mary Poppins is also incredible and very innovative. So it's it's a hard year to decide between those two. I think that is an interesting point too. Like, you know, we have, we talked at the beginning about how My Fair Lady got 12 nominations, Mary Poppins got 13 nominations. This really was kind of the year of the dueling musicals and, you know, rival studios to a certain point as well too. And I think to touch on that, Rance, you're right. This really is all about the big studio being triumphant. As you said, mm -hmm. proving that you could make a, a box office hit just using a back lot. My Fair Lady proved that, and I think that is why it was rewarded accordingly. And it, you know, we end up getting more of these huge musicals with intermissions 
that were what they called roadshow productions, meaning that before they went to the smaller movie theaters, they did special engagements across the country that were almost like uh, a theatrical event uh, where you got like a program and you paid a premium price. And, you know, there might have been like a little show before the movie, all of this. Um, and it, it only went to cities and then it went to the smaller theaters. Um this was uh, in the middle of Roadshow being a, a huge deal. And because My Fair Lady was such a big success, and then, of course, followed by The Sound of Music, which we'll talk about next year, but I don't think The Sound of Music is connected to My Fair Lady, uh, except for the fact that it's a musical, because I think it's a different type of musical. Um, this became the studio's formula. They're like, oh, we're going to pour all of our money into these big budget musicals for a few years and that's going to keep us afloat and by the late 60s the tides had turned and um it ended up becoming the reason that jack warner had to leave the studio because uh he was forced out because he was obsessed with this type of filmmaking but the thing that was coming into favor was very very different and his uh his folly ends up being a musical that does quite badly at the box office, um, and that is uh, Camelot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which he tries to repeat what he did for My Fair Lady with Camelot, and it does not. It does not uh, pay off. I know you guys are going to disagree with me, but I do think that Walt Disney did a better job with this this idea of this big musical with Mary Poppins. I think it's a better movie than My Fair Lady. I do think, I do agree that it is more innovative and progressive than... I mean, it's just, it's more magical, it's more innovative, it's just a better movie-going experience to me. You walk out of there much happier than if you'd sat through My Fair Lady and it's three hours of Rex Harrison talk singing. That is a good point, yes. <laughs> and the innovation with the special effects for My Fair Lady, that is quite incredible for 1964, you are right. Well, a spoonful of animation helps the medicine goes down. So, Absolutely. And the box office you know. go up. There is a third musical yeah, yeah. of this year that, that was a kind of a hit that wasn't even mentioned, nominated, but I, I just want to mention. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you. I don't know if you've ever seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, the French Oh, one. my God. It's so good. It's better than anything else we've talked about. Ah! <laughs> I've never heard of it. <laughs> it's the same year. It came out. Actually, this is really funny. A little, little gay trivia. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg was nominated in the 64 and 65 Oscars because somehow it bridged two years. I don't know how. Oh, this is um, this is part of uh, Oscar qualification rules. So what probably happened is um, it got the... Um, the the best uh what did it get this year it got best um foreign film is that right foreign language film um yeah it was nominated for foreign language film this year and then it gets technical nominations next year correct um that's because in order to qualify for all of the non-foreign language film oscars you have to play in movie theaters in the united states for the best foreign language language film, you don't have to play, or at least at this point in time, I don't know if the rules have changed. You don't have to play in uh, the the they're submitted by the countries mm -hmm. uh, 
for consideration. So it ended up being in two different Oscar ceremonies because the other categories required playing in U.S. theaters for qualification. I think it is the best musical of, of this year. It is absolutely beautiful. I mean, Sam, you should see it. It's really great. I am it's literally stunning, writing it down. I would love to. Stunning visually. Like, it's so colorful. And it's it's like an opera because it's not... There is no spoken dialogue. It's... um, um, And it has uh, Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, who also, yeah. I think... I mean, if this had been a more kind of accepting year, I think this would have been a Best Picture nominee and she would have been a Best Actress nominee. It, it It's that good. Yeah, and that. the... And the main the the recurring musical motif is is gorgeous. That that's throughout that whole movie. Da na 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 na. It's so good. Um, that was that was me doing Umbrellas of Sherborg. Um, it was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. When you said when you said um, the musical Forgotten, I I was expecting you to say either. Uh, it happened at the World's Fair or Fun in Acapulco with Elvis Presley, but apparently you don't think Elvis <laughs> movies should be nominated for Oscars, but okay, whatever. <laughs> so so basically we think My Fair Lady won because it's a celebration of studio-ness, even though I, I think we can agree that um, while we may be divided on Mary Poppins, I think we can agree that probably Beckett and Dr. Strangelove are more deserving best picture for 1964 yeah i was gonna say what is a movie you guys would award i would give best picture to dr strangelove personally i'm torn between dr strangelove and, and mary poppins to be honest i know it, it's a disney movie <laughs> i know it's a kid's movie but i think it's so innovative and magical and it would have been a great thing to have won um i probably i would probably go with dr strangelove um but uh that's that's only because I'm um I I know I can't in good faith give it to Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Um, <laughs> you can do whatever you want, Rance. But uh, because that may be my favorite film, but I well actually I really like Dead Ringer with Betty Davis that came out this year where she plays twins. But I Fair. know that's not actually the best movie of nineteen sixty. Oh wait, that's nineteen sixty four. I'm thinking of um uh yes 1964 yes i'm right yeah yeah you're right i'm sorry oh actually i read the wrong elvis movies to come out this year i'm so sorry guys um <laughs> there actually is a much better you know what i'm rescinding it um viva las vegas mm, mm, boy oh boy is my favorite movie that came out of 1964 hate me if you want to but and Margaret Elvis, does it get better than that? No, it does not. <laughs> it might. <laughs> Neither of them have to be dubbed. Do you think that if Julie Andrews was in My Fair Lady... Was in, was in Viva Las Vegas? If, she was in, if Julie Andrews was in Viva Las Vegas... Actually, that would have been great. <laughs> if, if Julie Andrews was in My Fair Lady, we wouldn't have had her as Mary Poppins, and we would, probably wouldn't have had her as Maria Von Trapp. Am I right? I wonder, do you, so you think it's Mary Poppins that gave her Sound of Music? Well, no, well, you know, Sound of Music started filming before my fear, uh, before Mary Poppins came out. Like, she was given it based on the word of mouth about her performance. But do you think she would have gotten the same word of mouth had she been in My Fair Lady? It's, I don't know, that's an alternate timeline. If, if... <laughs> 
if Mary Poppins doesn't happen, you know, Julie Andrews basically becomes like the top box office actress for a few years. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. And I mean, like she also has other hits like Thoroughly Modern Millie. And there's this big epic movie called Hawaii that um, she's right. in. That's a huge hit. Um, she's in Hitchcock's 50th movie, Torn Curtain. Right. Um you know, and all of those movies are big box office. Uh, and I, I does that happen without Mary Poppins? It's a really, although it should be known here, like even though she was, um, this is her breakout when this, when this, she was, uh, just about 30 years old, almost 30 when she won this Oscar. And, um, she had been starring on Broadway for several years and a lot of American audiences already knew her. Because um, she uh, she uh, did this live version of Cinderella mm-hmm. that was very widely seen on television. Um, so that she wasn't completely unknown. She'd also done some TV uh, performances on variety shows. Um, of course, been in uh, the My Fair Lady. Uh, she also originated Queen Genevieve and uh camelot um so you know she wasn't completely unknown but it is interesting to think what might have happened interestingly when camelot came around a few years later then jack warner wanted her in camelot and she didn't do it right (laughs) bingo um and we got vanessa redgrave in a musical instead (laughs) lucky us oh man the things that happen in hollywood (laughs) um i think we covered it i think that's 64 i think we did carmine thank you so much for joining us guys this was a pleasure i really had a great time thank you so much for letting me weigh in absolutely of course you're gonna have to you're gonna have to come back you know whenever we feel like we're getting stale (laughs) you'll never be stale to me but i'll definitely come back Uh, yay yay Um, let's look for it into next week uh 1965 we kind of touched on it here we're going to be talking about the sound of music another julie andrews movie i've seen it rance i'm sure you've seen it uh i've seen it several times Uh, (laughs) you're not gonna get a lot of complaining from me although i probably will go on several rants about the length of dr zhivago oh can't wait (laughs) 